Luke chapter 9, hear the word of Almighty God. Then Jesus called his twelve disciples together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. He sent them to preach the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. And he said to them, Take nothing for the journey, neither staffs, nor money bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics apiece. Whatever house you enter, stay there, and from there depart. And whoever will not receive you when you go out of that city, shake off the very dust from your feet as a testimony against them. So they departed and went through the towns, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Now Herod the Tetrarch heard of all that was done by him, and he was perplexed, because it was said by some that John had risen from the dead, and by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the old prophets had risen again. Herod said, John I have beheaded, but who is this of whom I hear such things? So he sought to see him. And the apostles, when they had returned, told him all that they had done. Then he took them and went aside privately into a deserted place belonging to the city called Bethsaida. So far in God's holy word. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this, your word, and we ask that we would have wisdom and discernment from your spirit, that we might understand it and respond in faith, for we ask it in Christ's name, amen. Well, up to this point, uh, Luke has shown us again and again in chapters 3 through 8 that uh, Christ is full of authority and power. And he has focused since partway through chapter 2, even when Christ was circumcised from that point on, there, ha- there has really not been a, a paragraph in which Christ wasn't front and center on the stage. And yet here in chapter 9, we see Christ uh, recede slightly into obscurity a little bit. From one perspective, from one perspective, here he sends out his apostles and it seems, and, and the other, the other um, gospels bear witness to this a little bit, that it seems that Christ retreated a little bit from uh, public ministry while he had sent out these very apostles. And, and you can see that here a little bit. Herod is seeking to find him, but he doesn't seem to find him, does he? And if you read in Mark or in Matthew, uh, these Gospels emphasize uh, Christ uh, receding even a little more because they give the John the Baptist narrative uh, 15 verses in Mark and 12 in Matthew, where Christ isn't in the paragraph, really. And that's very rare. That's very strange. Um, a, lot of, a lot of 
false gospels that were written a couple hundred years later would have full paragraphs about individuals other than Christ. But the, the four gospels we have almost never have paragraphs where Christ isn't right up there as the center stage. And yet at this point in his ministry, we in three of the gospels find this, this whole section about John the Baptist and Herod as if Christ has receded into the background a little. He's sent out his apostles to do ministry and disappeared a little bit. It's hard to know exactly how all of these details run together. In Matthew's gospel, we do find that one of the reasons he takes his apostles aside, as we see here in verse 10, is that he has heard that John has been beheaded and he's grieving. And so he goes off to, to grieve. And it's possible that that's actually something that happens as he sends out his apostles. Perhaps he's heard that John is dead. He sends them out to minister and goes off to have a little private retreat of grief himself while they're gone. And then they come to him and join him in the retreat. I think that's probably what we're seeing. That's probably also why Herod can't seem to find Jesus when he's looking for him here. Even though suddenly he's interested in hearing about Jesus. Well, to say that Christ goes a little bit off the center stage and pushes his disciples out there is true from one perspective, I said. But in another sense, Luke doesn't show us it that way. Because we could summarize our chapter, our verses here under five verbs of what Jesus is doing by sending his apostles out. Even though he sends them, it's still Jesus that is... The, the actor in all of this. And so I want to think about these five verbs this morning. Five verbs in regard to the sending out of the apostles. Five verbs that then should, should challenge us in our being sent out as well. We are distinct from the apostles. They have a unique office that none of us hold. And there are certain things that they do that none of us have the ability or the authority to do. And yet we too have been commissioned by Christ. And so there are principles that we can draw from this. And so first we, we see these, these five verbs. Uh, the five verbs would be Christ gives, sends, instructs, warns, and provides. So we'll, we'll start with, with the first one there. Christ gives. Christ gives authority and power. In verse 1. Again, chapters 3 through 8, we've been seeing over and over that Christ has this authority in and of himself. He doesn't get it derivative from someone else, he directly has this authority. And we've seen all sorts of things that he can do. He has authority and power over sickness, weather, demons, hosts of demons, armies of demons over death itself in two instances, and over sin. And he doesn't speak on another's behalf. It is Christ who has the authority and the power to do these things. Now he sends some, the apostles out with some of this power 
and authority that is his so that they may heal and they may also cast out demons. But they are sent out with this authority and power that is not their own. If Christ had chosen men who had a a human type of authority and and power with words, right? Just a charisma and a a brilliance uh, to to do oration on their own, that surely Nicodemus, the teacher of Israel, would have been one of the twelve. Surely the apostle Paul, Saul at this point, would have been one of the twelve. But no, these twelve that he sends out here are not men known as being powerful and authoritative. They're fishermen. They're despised zealots, that, that is, terrorists. They are uh, IRS agents, Matthew. You know, they, they are not men who were known as being the powerful and the authoritative speakers of their day. In fact, we know they don't have authority and power for a number of reasons. One, later, when confronted by people, they will be terrified and run away. That isn't someone who has authority and power in and of themselves. But even in Luke, in this very chapter, we're going to encounter them at least twice, showing that they don't have authority to do miracles even, all on their own. We're going to see that even as as soon as next week, that they just don't have the ability in and of themselves. No, Christ is the one that gives the authority and the power. But his authority and power is so great, he can give it. And they go out and they heal and, and they cast out demons in his name. Christ may recede into the background, perhaps even if, as I've suggested, he, he may even be going off to grieve privately But his ministry actually increases, not decreases, because of that. For he increases the towns that are receiving his authority sixfold. Mark tells us he sends the apostles out in groups of two. That means six towns each day instead of the one that Christ had been doing previously. He has increased his ministry power, not decreased it by giving this authority to his apostles to do these wonders in his name. In fact, have you ever wondered why Herod now finds it impossible, inescapable, to ignore Jesus? Jesus has been going around for over a year at this point. There are are multitudes witnessing that that guy was dead uh, in his coffin going to the gravesite, and now he's alive. There there were whole cities that were terrorized by multitudes of demons who are now free from that, whether or not they liked how Christ did it. They witnessed that something happened. How is it that Herod can have his conscience ignore Christ for so long. And suddenly here, he heard all that was done by Jesus. I think it's suggesting to us that it is as the apostles go out 
in Jesus' name that Jesus cannot be ignored by Herod anymore. And that brings us to the, the, second, the second point, the second verb. Jesus not only gives authority and power, but he sends with a message. Verse 2. So he sends them out with authority and power to heal and to cast out demons. But the, the purpose of this, this ministry they're going out to do is to proclaim or to preach the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. That emphasis on the preaching of the kingdom of God. What, what would that be like? What is the preaching which they did? This last week I was uh, thinking about, you know, th- thanks to having Christian publishing houses who um, are always looking for a way to, to publish something even if no one wrote a book new. Uh, we, we have all these volumes out there of, you know, 12 sermons on uh, uh, one of my favorites. I think D.L. Moody c- compiled it back in the day. Shall we know each other in heaven? And it has sermons by uh, Edwards and Ryle and... Uh, Spurgeon and D.L. Moody and all these different people on heaven. It's a wonderful little volume, one sermon per preacher. I was thinking this week, if Crossway Books or, or someone else existed back then, we would have a 12 sermons of the apostles on their first missionary trip. Right? One sermon per apostle. Wouldn't you love to have that from this from this passage that, that now, now there's an addendum in here with Luke and here, here's, you know, Thomas preaching on Christian, uh, or, uh, on uh, courage in the Psalms or, um, or Matthew preaching on Leviticus 5. You know, that would be a great volume. God did not see fit to give us that. We don't need it. But, but we, we can rightly ask, I think, what is it, this preaching of the kingdom that they did? Then as we look at the fact that that people are thinking maybe John the Baptist is back, or maybe Elijah. I think that tells us a lot about the type of preaching that the apostles were doing as preachers of the kingdom of Christ. It was like John's preaching. It was like Elijah's preaching. What, what was that preaching like? It was preaching of sin. It was preaching of repentance. It was preaching of preparation for the Messiah. So it would have been like Elijah and John's preaching, but informed further by what these apostles have seen living with Christ day and night for a, a year now, being in a full time seminary life with Christ. And so it would not just say, be ready for the king, but the king is here, the Messiah is here. And this is what he does. He makes the lame to walk, the blind to see, the dead rise. That's the kind of preaching that would accompany calling on people to to see their own sin and repent. Believe. Because if this one can do these things, then he can save you from your sin. It would also no doubt include preaching about the kingdom as Christ has already preached on it. Remember, they've heard the Sermon on the Mount. They've heard uh, uh, the Sermon on the Plateau, if it's two separate sermons, or maybe you think it's the same sermon, fine. They've heard this type of preaching for a year now. Blessed are the poor in spirit, 
for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. This type of preaching from the apostles as well. Well, uh, I want to just pause for a second and think about these first two verbs that Christ gives authority and power and he sends with a message and we aren't the apostles. I, I can't cast out demons. I don't think. <laughs> it's never been put to the test. Um, it's never been put to the test. I've, I've prayed for people I, I thought were demon-possessed. But, uh, but I, I've never tried casting one out. But I am called to resist the devil, and he will flee from me. And so are you. You, fellow believer, who may not be called to full-time preaching of the gospel, but are called to be witnesses and ready to give a reason for your faith to whomever asks, who have been given with me as part of the church of Christ, the commission to go to all the world and bring the gospel to all peoples, you also have been told, resist the devil and he will flee from you. That's not Paul telling us that you can cast out demons necessarily. That's a, that's a whole different topic we can think and pray about in another instance. And if you're interested in that topic, I would love to have conversations. It's, an, it's a topic I'm interested in thinking about and praying about more. But, but in your own heart and life, you are called to resist the temptations that the liar would put in your heart and mind. I can't heal someone by touching them. But you and I are called to pray with and for those who are sick. And when Christ does not see fit to heal them, to care for them in every way we can in his name. And you and I are not the apostles, but we are given the same exact message to proclaim, except more informed than they were when they went on this trip. Informed by the apostles after they had seen him risen from the dead. Informed by the apostles through the completed revelation of all that we know, all that we need to know for conversion, for sanctification, for life, for waiting for the return of our Lord. We have been given that message and sent to speak it. To speak of sin, repentance, and salvation through the resurrection life and the atoning death of the King who reigns right now over all things and whose kingdom is being built and will never end. Well, the third verb here is that Christ instructs. In our passage, we see Christ instructing his messengers to adorn the message they've been given. And I think this is really the, the emphasis of verses 3 and 4. If you've read the Gospels, you know that these two verses don't define every missionary journey ever. 
Even in the Gospels, before his crucifixion, Christ mixes up what he tells them to take with them on a journey. Sometimes he tells them to take money. Here he tells them not to. Take a change of clothes, a backpack, a day pack, a a staff for the journey. Here he tells them not to. And so it's not that never are his servants to take anything with them. What would be the purpose here of not taking anything with them? I think J.C. Ryle gets to the point well that this is showing that you really believe what you're preaching. He says when you go to a city, stay in the first place where you have a bed for the night and do not change houses while you're in that town. Why would he need to say that? Well, perhaps you get to the city on day one, or not you, but you know. James and John are out on their preaching journey together. I just assume they were together. And, and they come to a city, they come to a village, and they're preaching, I don't know, preaching the, the kingdom from you know, the Psalms or something. And only one person comes and invites them for hospitality in his house. Maybe it's a poor poor shepherd on the outskirts of town, a hovel that's not very uh, large or uh, maybe not even very clean. And they give you hospitality for the night, this poor shepherd family. But tomorrow you go out and here's the, the son of the elder of the synagogue is sick and James touches him and he's healed. What do you think happens? Well, now the most important religious man in town wants you to stay in his house, know his hospitality, eat at his much nicer table. And what would the, what would the thought be? Oh, well, yeah, definitely. And you might even have a somewhat nice thought in the back of your mind mixed with perhaps a selfish thoughts. You know, we don't want to be a burden to the poor family. We don't want to intrude on their hospitality. But in their culture, this was a prestige thing. Uh, The apostles are not to give the indication that they're out and in it for the best hospitality, the best prestige, to make a name for themselves. They're to stay at whatever place they first went and be content. Display to the people they're preaching the kingdom to that they are content with what they have, even if it's little or nothing. And it's the same thing with what they bring or don't bring. Imagine if a guest preacher showed up, pulled up to our church in a brand new Porsche, wearing a Brooks Brothers suit, with a $3,000 watch, worried that our unpaved parking lot here was going to get his shoes dirty and then stood up here and announced his text Matthew chapter 5 blessed are the poor in spirit how would how would you receive that message would you have a hard time maybe if Joel Olstein parachuted off his private jet into the parking lot here and walked in and tried to preach to you blessed are the poor in spirit Would you be convinced he really believed the Sermon on the Mount? 
I'm not convinced he really believes the Sermon on the Mount. It would be hard to receive, wouldn't it? And I think that's what Christ is getting at here. You're going out to preach a kingdom that is not great in this world's eyes. A kingdom like we spent the whole summer looking at, right? In the, in the Sermon on the Plateau. A kingdom that loves its enemies and prays for those who hate you. A kingdom where those who grieve are the ones who are blessed. And the messenger needs to adorn that gospel. It's okay for you and I to have possessions. In fact, Acts even shows some of the most praised people in the book of Acts are rich believers. There are all these merchant women who are loved by the poor. Isn't that interesting? Somehow they were rich but still adorned the gospel in a way that taught the poor that they really believed in the kingdom of God. Um, But we have to be cautious with whatever we have that we are adorning the message. Adorning the message with how we live before the world. And so Christ instructs his messengers to live in a manner that makes the message believable. At the very least, even if it's not accepted, they know you believe it. And we're still called to do this very thing. And then the fourth, the fourth verb, Christ warns his messengers not to expect a perfect reception. That's verse 5. And whoever will not receive you. There's no if there. If someone happens, maybe not to receive you. No, it's when they don't receive you. You're to expect some rejection from those to whom you preach, Christ says to the apostles. And we should expect nothing less ourselves. Now, um, this, this dust thing, I, I think sometimes we put a little bit of vindictiveness into it as believers. And it wasn't a vindictive, vengeful action, even though it sounds that way to us. It was a judging action, a judgment action, uh, but there is a difference between leaving wrath to God and vengeance to God and being vengeful in how you do an action. And of course, we can envision dusting off shoes in a hateful manner, but it wasn't meant to be that. It actually plays off of a Jewish tradition. It wasn't a, an Old Testament tradition. It was one that the Jews had just kind of picked up or made up during their exile years and after. And that was when they were journeying through some pagan land or if they somehow ended up having to eat a meal in a Gentile home or something, which they tried not to do, uh, then they would dust off their feet before entering their home or their community again. The idea was don't bring any of that pagan whatever back home. Uh, uh, Superstitious thought pattern. See what Jesus is saying? But the disciples aren't going out to the world here. They're going through the cities of Israel. And Jesus is saying, 
that uh, being made unholy or declaring something unholy, how the Jews themselves receive you, and not really you, how they receive the message of the kingdom which is mine, will determine whether they're really set apart and holy or not. They can have a synagogue that keeps all the synagogue rules, reads the scriptures every, Lord's, uh, every Sabbath day, uh, 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 holds highly this idea of, of uh, a Messiah will come, but now the Messiah has come and you go and preach, and if they do not receive you, whether it's a Jewish house, a Jewish community, a Jewish synagogue, they are not set apart and holy in the eyes of God. It's still leaving the vengeance to God, but it's, I wonder how many of these Jewish communities the apostles cried as they dusted their feet off from. This wasn't going to the Gentiles where even the apostles might have fallen into the sin of uh, uh, racial hatred, religious hatred. This was their own communities, the kingdom they belonged to, they thought. They'd always belong to. I wonder how many tears they shed as the dust came off their sandals. But they're declaring whether or not these have rejected the Messiah. Uh, we, we don't have that custom. We aren't to keep it. But I think we are being told here not to be surprised when we are rejected. We are to expect some not to receive the testimony we give. And if we're expecting it, we're not to get caught up and stuck. Not all of you have that personality, but some of you do. Some of us do. You're, you're witnessing to someone. You want them to come to Christ They mock the gospel and you get stuck. You become ineffective for other witnessing because in your mind you're just stuck on this person who has rejected the message. And I think Christ is saying here, expect some to reject it and move on. Keep praying for them. And if they sincerely are asking you, To give a reason for your faith, you must be ready to do so. But there is a time to say there are others who might hear. Some will reject. Move on. Keep moving. Keep sharing. There are many lost. The fifth verb then is Christ provides. Christ provides For his messenger's weakness. And this is why I had us read verse 10. Which in I bet all of your copies of Luke. Has a divider right above it. Separating it out for the next section. Actually originally I was going to do both sections together. But aren't you glad I didn't. There is a connection between the two sections. But verse 10 is the transition part. And verse 10 shows us the end of this first apostolic mission. And that is that Christ provides 
for his messenger's weakness. As I said, Matthew 14 verse 13 tells us that part of Christ's retreat here is to retreat to grieve. He retreats whether he does it initially by himself, as I suggested, uh, or simply now he retreats with his apostles for the sake of grief. Away from those who don't know him as well, wanting the comfort of those who love him the most, he retreats. But Mark 6 tells us that's not the only reason for the retreat. Mark chapter 6 Verse 31 tells us, just as our text here in verse 10 does, that the apostles returned and told him all that they had done. Mark adds in there, and what they had preached. They're going to get his sermon critiques, as many a seminary student does. Horrifying moment. Must have been a truly horrifying moment when it was Christ you were reporting the sermon to. Uh, But they report this, and this is what Mark records. Christ says to the apostles then, Come aside by yourselves to a deserted place and rest for a while. He's saying you've done hard work, and now you need rest. Well, wait a second. Aren't the harvests still plentiful and the workers still few? Aren't there many communities that they didn't get to in the past week or two? Don't they need to keep working? Jesus, there's multitudes out there that need them to bring the message. Herod still doesn't believe. Others still don't believe. And Christ says, no, you need rest. This is something some of you really need to digest. Because some of us have personalities that never rest. Think that unless we're constantly working, because there's always work, we are failing in some way. But that's not how our God created us. And that's not how our Messiah treats us. The work always continues. Christ says, take a moment to rest. Stop and recover. He says it to the apostles who have been given this level of authority and power you and I will never have. And he says to them, rest. He says it to us every week on the Lord's Day, the Christian Sabbath. He says to you, stop and rest. But he also would call you to take other times to pause and be refreshed spiritually in relationship with him. Every day, if you aren't pausing for prayer and your relationship with Christ, it will affect whatever you think you're doing in service to him in the world. And I'm very guilty here. It's so easy to want to talk to people about the gospel and forget my own need to sit down and be refreshed with Christ. But he calls us to this. He calls them to it here. A few years ago, I was reading a book 
um, by uh, uh, David Murray, who um, uh, some friends of ours, Andrew and Diana, I guess, just became members of that congregation that Murray's pastor of this morning. Um, but Murray, in one of his books, writes, he, he writes something along these lines. This isn't a direct quote. He says, we preach a sermon to ourselves every time we go to sleep. We preach a sermon that the world doesn't rest on my shoulders. That it will continue to be upheld while I snore. Because Christ is the one that upholds all things. That when I sleep, I am preaching a sermon to myself that I am weak and he is strong. Christ calls on his servants to know their weakness. And here he provides them with opportunity opportunity to rest we're going to see next week that that gets cut short sometimes it does sometimes your devotions get cut off halfway through some sometimes the retreat wasn't as relaxing for your family because you were hosting it (laughs) things like this happen but christ still provides us with space and calls on us to know our weakness and rest. Well, this all is what he calls on the apostles two and four, and we we are called with his commission, the commission of the one who has all authority in heaven and on earth, to bring the same message, to live out the gospel in the same way, to know that we will be rejected for it, and to accept that we need rest in our weakness. It's all true of us. In fact, I think 1 Corinthians 4, uh, sorry, 2 Corinthians 4, knits so many of these elements together beautifully. And so I'm going to end by reading some of those words to us again. Therefore, says the Apostle, since we have this ministry, as we have received mercy, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced the hidden things of shame Not walking in craftiness, nor handling the word of God deceitfully, but in the manifestation of truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in God's sight. But even if if our gospel is veiled, that is, if some reject the gospel, it is veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord and ourselves, your bondservants, for Jesus' sake. For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay, that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. Let's